This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for joining us. And if you're not already doing so, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do kindly leave us a nice review. Free expression is essential to the functioning of any democracy. And each week on this podcast, we aim to contribute by having a wide-ranging, candid conversation with leading figures in the worlds of politics, business, technology, academia, the arts and culture, and so forth, exploring in depth the themes, people, and topics driving our world. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Roberts. Andrew is one of our leading and most prolific historians, having written innumerable works on an impressively wide range of topics. His biography of Winston Churchill, published in 2018, has been praised, rightly in my view, as the best single-volume biography of the man in a very crowded field. But he's also written magisterial works on figures such as Napoleon and, most recently, George III, published in the U.S. under the title The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. He's written other histories, too, of course, including works on both the First and Second World Wars, and with a title that suggests a little homage to Churchill, he also wrote a history of the English-speaking peoples. He holds academic positions on both sides of the Atlantic and is a prominent commentator on current events in Britain and around the world, with frequent piquant and pellucid observations from a conservative perspective on the state of modern politics. Andrew Roberts, thanks very much for joining me. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jerry, and thank you so much for saying such nice things about my books. Not at all. They are wonderful. Anyway, I want to get into your historical work, but these are tumultuous times in politics, particularly right now in Britain. I should say we're recording this Wednesday, lunchtime, New York time, Wednesday afternoon, London time, and any minute now, we're going to have the results of the first round of elections for the new Conservative leader in Britain and, of course, the new Prime Minister after Boris Johnson's resignation last week. This is a process that will go on over probably over the next few weeks, and we'll have a Prime Minister by September. But I want to ask you, Andrew, about these tumultuous times we're living in. Don't need to spend too much time on Boris Johnson and his fall and uh, his Prime Ministership, or significant though I think it was, perhaps more significant than some people give him credit for. For. You're very close to this, both from a thorough reading of the history of the Conservative Party, but also as an observer of current Conservative politics. What do you think the Conservative Party is looking for at this moment? And as they're in the process of electing their next leader, what are the big central debates in British Conservatism? I think the first major debate that they are having successfully is over levels of taxation. The question is really between the Keynesians on one side and the Laffer curve people who believe that tax cuts can, in and of themselves, finance their own tax cuts. So that's taking place. The size of the state is being debated by the leadership hopefuls. So there are some important and genuinely interesting debates going on. Of course, it being a leadership election, there are also some pretty underhand things happening as well with knocking dossiers and unpleasant, um, unattributable briefings, as you always get in these kind of circumstances. But if I think you look to the important and serious and substantial area of this debate, we are having a debate about the future of conservatism with a small c. Obviously, the big defining political trend on the right, certainly and arguably more widely in the last few years, has been the rise of called populism, whatever you want to call it, but a sort of a certainly a kind of a reimagined form of conservatism. We saw it 
with Brexit and what followed both the actual Brexit vote itself, Boris's leadership, the 2019 general election in Britain, which saw huge numbers of former working class Labour voters coming over to the Tories, giving the Tories their biggest win in 35 years, really changing the complexion of politics in very similar ways. The similarities can be overdone, obviously, and are overdone, but in similar ways to what we've seen to Republican Party here in the US under Donald Trump. Again, Donald Trump himself, who appealed to many voters who had not previously been strong Republican voters by emphasizing issues of culture and national identity and uh, issues like that. As you look at that developing, do you think that is now, again, people use the term populist sometimes in a pejorative way, but I think it can actually be expressed in a positive way. Do you think that populist conservatism is now the defining ethos of conservatives on both sides of the Atlantic? I think it might be on the American side of the Atlantic, but of course it slightly depends on who wins this Tory leadership election. I'm not sure it is on this side of the Atlantic. You were right, of course, that the what are called the Red Wall seats, the uh, working class northern seats that essentially gave Boris his huge majority, did come partly as a result of populism. But it's too easy and, as I think you've implied, far too facile to equate Johnson himself with Donald Trump owing to the fact that the things, apart from their hair, of course, that divide them are far more important than the things that unite them in terms of free trade and so on. So I think that it's too easy to jump to that conclusion. We are, of course, a long way away in Britain from the populist parties of the continent. Marine Le Pen's party, the AFD in Germany, of course, the Austrians, who are far, far to the right of anybody in the Conservative Party. One of the things I've been struck, though, by following the Conservative leadership contest quite closely is what appears to be the appeal of those who are actually aggressively embracing the culture wars. People like Kemi Badenoch, who is sort of, most of our American listeners won't know who we're talking about, but in fact, most of our British listeners possibly don't know who we're talking about. But she's a very much a rising star in the Conservative Party and is expected to do well. I don't think she's expected to win, but she's someone who came to the United Kingdom at an early age from Nigeria. It's an absolute scourge of kind of the woke politics of the age. It's a very, very articulate, very successful, very impressive young woman. It's also been clear that some of the other candidates have been talking very firmly about pushing back against woke politics, about um, you know explaining that a woman is indeed a woman and a man is a man. And that really does have resonance on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, we are in the grip, aren't we, Andrew? And again, as a historian, you must see this with a particular perspective, that we are in the grip of this sort of extraordinary kind of progressive cultural revolution here. And I think the conservatives, to some extent, are uniting around a pushback against that, are they not? They certainly are, yes. And this is another very interesting thing about this. I don't think that the Conservatives on either side of the Atlantic started the culture wars. They were very much forced upon us uh, by critical race theory and the Black Lives Matter movement and various, uh, the 1619 project on your side of the Atlantic and their equivalents on this one. However, Conservatives have decided to fight them and fight them pretty unitedly. None of the candidates at all for the Tory leadership campaign have any truck with the woke lobby over this. And so it's a culture war that we didn't seek, but which we can see a way of winning. And one of the ways of winning it is to give people the vote, local people, ask them whether or not they want to have their local statues removed and their place names changed. Because every single time it's been tried, they vote it down by huge majorities. How do we get here, Andrew? I mean, it is remarkable. You know, you and I are about the same age, grew up in that sort of late days of the Cold War. The West won the Cold War under American leadership, and we all sort of 
rejoiced in that fact and rejoiced in the fact that the values that we had stood for through our lives had been vindicated and had triumphed. And, and now we're sort of told that all these great figures of history on this side of the Atlantic, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and even, God help us, Abraham Lincoln. And on the British side of the Atlantic, Winston Churchill, you know, as you say, people defacing statues or even claim wanting to tear them down. How did this, in such a relatively short period of time, how on earth did we get to this situation where this progressive ideology has become so powerful and so dominant to the point where we really are forced to defend our own civilization from within? I think it's because we did win the Cold War and because the political and to an extent, you know, military and strategic side of that struggle was finally won in 1989, although of course you could argue with regard to what Putin's doing at the moment, how far it was won, but nonetheless, it was ideologically won. So what did the left have to fight back with? Well, the answer, as we now discover, is woke. They were not routed in the academy in the same way that they were in the Berlin Wall, for example. And so they have come back in a different sort of form. And essentially, the argument has metastasized and is being continued through these woke attacks. And all of those historical figures you mentioned, the left utterly refused to actually debate in an objective way, taking into account the backgrounds they had and the historical contexts that they had. And even though ordinary people consider that to be ridiculous, nonetheless, when it's shouted from the rooftops and it's painted onto walls and onto the statues, it does gain attention. It is striking, again, on both sides of the Atlantic, even at our greatest universities, the grip that these people do still hold. It is quite difficult to if you don't mind me saying so, you're, you're quite a rare voice these days as a conservative historian and someone who staunchly defends shared history, if you like, of the West. That, that is quite rare. I mean, the, the hegemony these people seem to have over our academic institutions is pretty considerable, isn't it? Yes, it's 95%. And uh, the big problem is, of course, there isn't a pendulum. It's not a pendulum. It's a one-way street because the people who, once they have grabbed the commanding heights of these important universities and other places, never give them up. When they retire, they make sure that their job is passed on to someone who's just as woke or just as left-wing as them. And they do discriminate against conservatives. You see it again and again on both sides of the Atlantic. So there is a uh, sense in which that battle, frankly, has been lost. But where Gramsci got it wrong when he was talking about the long march of the institutions was the idea that that necessarily in and of itself leads to conservatives losing general elections and socialists winning. Although the graduates were the vote just to have been confined to graduates in the United Kingdom in 2019, Jeremy Corbyn would have won. And that, of course, is not what happened. And we don't do that. So overall, I think that the danger of the long march through the institutions is not as bad as we thought it was going to be back in the 1990s. Didn't William Buckley famously say that he'd rather be governed by the first 200 names in the Boston telephone directory than by the Harvard faculty or something? Well, and who wouldn't? Yes, I mean, that was a very good insight into several things, including, of course, the stupidity of intelligent people. <laughs> what do you think about the way history is taught and is understood? Again, one of the common complaints that you hear again on both sides of the Atlantic is that we have a sort of whitewashed version of history that we're taught that Anglo civilization, Western civilization is a great thing and has been the great sort of liberating force of history and we ignore all the, the bad stuff. And to be honest, that's not actually my recollection, again, of a certain age these days. Certainly wasn't what, what I was taught. And I don't think it's what most people were taught either. I don't think most British people have an unblemished view of the British Empire, do they, as some sort of great 
civilizing force. They've been very well aware of the of the dark side of the British Empire. Certainly, up today, I'm 59 and a half. Um, I realized a little earlier on uh, today, I, when I was at school and prep school, of course I was taught about the Amritsar massacre and the terrible things that happened in Jamaica and the negative effects of the British Empire on Aboriginal peoples and so on. I mean, it's a complete myth, this idea that British history was whitewashed for generations for pupils and students. It just simply never happened. Of course, we were given an objective view. But the problem is that I don't think that that's true any longer. I think that the negative, the knocking, the anti-British view is the one that is being rammed down the um, throats of children nowadays and they're not being given the full details and when you do actually do that occasionally um, or you read books that do that they are attacked and uh, viciously criticized and sometimes banned in schools so I really do think that we've got to get back to a evidence-based serious substantial even perhaps mildly boring frankly history of what actually happened as opposed to this very politically inspired ideological one. I can say with children who've been educated in the United States, it's exactly the same here too, unfortunately, that accentuating the negative is very much the trend. Just one more question on current sort of British politics. Brexit obviously is done. I mean, I know there are lots of questions that still remain, particularly over Northern Ireland, and that's one of the things the new Prime Minister is going to have to sort out pretty quickly. Again, from the historical perspective, what is Britain's post-EU role? What, what is, you know, people hear a lot about this, you know, post-Brexit Britain and global Britain. And what do you think, again, with the knowledge of history that you have, what's your sense of how Britain can adapt to this new world? Oh, well, I think it's a great opportunity for Britain. I think it should be recharging the special relationship, apart from anything else. I've read the obituaries of an awful lot of people who've written the obituary of the special relationship. And the fact is, we see it, don't we, today, the two nations who are actually doing something useful in the way of giving lethal aid to Ukraine are Britain and America. The ones who are dragging their feet and promising a lot and delivering very little are France and Germany and other European countries. So I think the special relationship still exists and it's been helped by Brexit. I think that the trade deals we're doing around the world, uh, the free ports that we've been able to set up, the way in which we can take our own decisions with regard to immigration and so on, these are things that aren't immediately obvious and helpful for the economy, but certainly will be over the coming years. And it's very pleasing, I think, that not only of the Tory leadership campaigners said that they're going to keep Brexit, but so has the Labour Party now. Um, and so it doesn't look as though we're going to have a revision of that, at least in the near future. What about that British-US relationship? Again, you spend a lot of time in the US, you've got academic appointments here in the US, so you're very familiar with the politics here. It was striking to me that, you know, as you said, there are big differences between Boris and Trump, even as there were some commonalities. But it was always striking to me that Conservatives as a whole in Britain seem to be very keen to keep their distance from Trump. Now, Trump is still around, may well run again for president, may well again be president. Whether or not that happens, how do you think that the future British government, the next prime minister, handles that relationship with a US that obviously has a somewhat, well, a significantly different approach to international, to the rest of the world, to international institutions. I know that that has made a lot of British conservatives uncomfortable. How do you think that develops over the next few years? Well, I think it's part of the duties of a British prime minister to get on with his American presidential counterpart. We've seen it sometimes break down. Harold Wilson didn't get on with LBJ, for example, and uh, uh, Ted Heath didn't much like Nixon. But really, uh, 
pretty much all of the rest of them have had some kind of a good working relationship. And I think that whoever is your president is going to be incumbent on the Britain to get on with the American. You'll find, um, actually, I if Keir Starmer was to become Prime Minister, that even he would have to swallow some of his words and get on with Mr. Trump. The fact is, we have so much more that unites us than divides us. We see it when we look out into the world in which uh, Russia and China pose some significant dangers and perils and threats, that we have to get on with one another. And well, you don't necessarily have to get on with us, but we jolly well have to get on with you. And so any British Prime Minister will do his or her best. Talk about, so about some of your books. I'd love to get some thoughts from you about the King George III book, which you know, has this wonderfully kind of counterintuitive take. I think it's one of the most maligned probably figures in history, King George III, and you wrote this book setting the historical record straight. How's that book gone down in, particularly in the United States? I'm fascinated to know what kind of response you get from American readers. Well, it's been great, actually. I've had a very, very wide reviewing, which was lovely. Um, Hardly a single negative review. No knee-jerk jingoism or anything like that. When I go to places like Monticello and Mount Vernon and various other sort of, uh, you know, hallowed places in the American revolutionary story, I've been greeted like a long-lost friend and people have been very up for discussing and debating and enjoying the um, you know 18th century discussions. So, no, I've been thrilled, in fact. You paint a picture, again, of a much more complex man that we're used to seeing. And I wonder why you think he has been so badly maligned. It's the simple answer that it kind of suits both sides. It suits the American side to dismiss this man as a tyrant, sort of a rather fey tyrant, as perfectly brilliantly captured in the musical Hamilton. And it sort of suits the British side to say, well, he was the idiot, he lost the colonies, so he must have been an idiot. Is it that simple? What's your explanation? It's almost that simple, but I'd also add on one more sort of patina to it, which is that for 200 years, the Whig historians, who were very much connected to the Whig party that uh, George III kept out of power for a very long time, saw themselves as being, as their duty was to try and make George III out to be a dictator and a tyrant, even though they had absolutely no evidence for this. And so you have this very long story of historians passing it on from father to son, literally so in the Trevelyan's case, this idea that he was a sort of monstrous and evil figure. So it hasn't been difficult, frankly, to try and get people to have another look at him. You portray very well in the book the politics of the time, particularly in England, were much more complex, again, than I think that certainly modern observers think. And in fact, there were, of course, as we know, there were many heroes of the American Revolution, actually, in England, Edmund Burke and others. But I'm wondering, is it possible to have imagined that playing out in a different way? And, and what role George III did play in what ultimately, for, for the British at least, was a calamity? Is it possible to imagine that it could have really turned out differently, or were they just on divergent courses that were never going to be resolved? Uh, well, I love uh, counterfactual history. I once edited a book of counterfactual history. And yes, I think that if at the end of the French and Indian War, the British had recognised that what we needed was a kind of modern commonwealth, the same kind of commonwealth we have today, whereby America essentially became self-governing whilst keeping the monarchy. And the British had not passed the act that prevented Americans from moving westwards and had maybe even moved the monarchy to New York and recognised that it was the new world that was going to dominate the future rather than the old world. Then you'd have had a system in place, which if we had managed to stay together in a single political condominium, would have made it completely impossible, for example, for the Kaiser to have gone to war 
against Britain in 1914, which meant, of course, that there wouldn't have been a Russian revolution, no Nazis, no Holocaust. So there's a much better world out there in the parallel universe that you mention, in my view. And who was responsible for that? I mean, how much responsibility does George himself bear and how much do his ministers bear responsibility? His ministers bear a great deal, especially Lord George Germain, the American Minister for America, and of course, Lord North, a disastrous Prime Minister. But the generals also have to bear, and admirals have to bear a good deal of responsibility for the disasters in the American. American War, which I set out how and, and why they managed to screw it up. And I think it's also essentially important to remember that the founding fathers were an incredibly talented group of people. You know, to have somebody, a polymath like Benjamin Franklin, a charismatic leader like George Washington, a financial figure like Alexander Hamilton with his brain for economics, a wordsmith who was as good as Thomas Jefferson, a revolutionary genius like John Adams, you know, you have all of these people and many more, Madison, Monroe, you name it, all living in the same decade. Poor old George III, you know, was stuck with some very third-rate politicians and soldiers. And frankly, he was completely outmaneuvered. But that doesn't make him a bad person. That doesn't make him a tyrant or a dictator in the way that he's been made out to be. But I think also it's quite interesting you mentioned with the British Empire and slavery and so on. He never owned a slave in his life. He never bought or sold any. He didn't invest in any of the companies that did that. He signed the legislation in 1807 that abolished the slave trade. And yet he's constantly been held sort of on a moral, lower moral plane than 42 out of the 56 signatories of the Declaration of Independence who did own slaves. It's a very good point, too, about the extraordinary confluence of all these heroic American figures at that time. Was that sort of happenstance, or was it something about the conditions of the colonies at the time? Was it something about the history of the colonies that actually helped produce men of that quality? Or again, was it just, you know, again, I'm fascinated by history. To what extent is chance and to what extent are these sort of underlying factors that can't be escaped? Well, I think the great moments do throw up the great men and women in history. You do see that again and again. And also, there's something called prosopography, which is where if you have a certain number of great men and women, it attracts more. And you certainly see that in the America of the 1770s, rather like you see it in the late 5th century BC Athens and at other points in history where there's a, such a ferment of ideas that the best people come forward to take part in that and they all sort of egg each other on to um, greater and greater things and that was something that was certainly going on I think in America in the 1770s. You also of course had more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city of the empire apart from London and you had a burgeoning economy and 7% year-on-year growth and a huge population expansion. So you put all those things together and you wind up with something pretty extraordinary. We need to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with historian Andrew Roberts. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Andrew Roberts, historian, biographer, about great men, great women, and their role in history. 
You've written these really terrific biographies, most recently, George III, Winston Churchill, Napoleon, others. One can tell, obviously, from your reading that you are, there's this great divide among historians between, you know, the great men theory of history and the, you know, the, the sort of the underlying causes, if you like, kind of more Marxian approach to history. And obviously, the answer is always a kind of some sort of a, an interplay between the two. But I think, you know, and again, with your fascination, as you've described it, for sort of alternative history or uh, the sort of history that didn't happen if it hadn't been for one or particular person or events, I take it you do think that these figures, these extraordinary historical figures, can and do have an outsized effect on the world for forever. Yes, it's important, of course, not to overestimate it. You know, there are great underlying what uh, T.S. Eliot called vast impersonal forces that are at work in human history, the rise of science and the decline of magic, for example, industrialization and so on, things that no one individual could have stopped. But equally, when you come to key moments in history, Russia would not have been invaded by France in 1812 if Napoleon hadn't existed, nor do I believe that Russia would have been invaded by Germany in 1941, if it hadn't been for Hitler, uh, we could well have made peace with Germany in May 1940 if it hadn't been for Churchill. And so there are moments in history where great individuals do step up and take, uh, and by great, I of course um, use that in the widest possible sense with regard to Adolf Hitler, they do take decisions which do not come as the result of a sort of upsurge of the people. What's your sense of the historical standing of Churchill? As we, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, the sort of revisionist tendency that we have, the sort of you know anti-colonial mood, the kind of woke impulse that seems to drive so much of our discussion right now. I'm not close enough to what's going on in Britain. There has been talk about, you know, removing statues and this kind of stuff. Does Churchill, though, still have a sort of unimpeachable standing as one of the greatest Britons of all time? No, he's being impeached all the time. There's a sort of continual impeachment process, frankly. But the wonderful thing is that he was so eloquent in his own defence that if you quote him enough in his own defence, he tends to knock away the arguments made by the people who want to impeach him. If you go back to the original sources and check out the things that he's being attacked for, you very often find that they're based on flimsy or even non-existent evidence. But of the last three books written about Churchill, two have been violently um, anti-Churchill. I reviewed both of them for The Spectator, in fact, and uh, in both cases, they had the most appalling, egregious factual inaccuracies throughout the, the books. And they both came from an ideological position that hated Churchill, not for what he did, but for who he was. And that, frankly, is unhistorical and completely unfair, of course, to someone who's long dead. What about the kind of the, the phenomenon of judging historical figures by the modern standards that we operate by. I mean, that seems to me to be huge. You can go back and look, so 18th century figures and whether, again, whether they owned slaves or whether they had rather what might be considered today rather retrograde views about the role of women. What's the right balance? And at the same time, of course, there were even within the, you know, that period, I mean, in the late 18th century in Britain, as you say, there was a lively debate about slavery. And there were some people who did think slavery was absolutely evil and wrong and needed to be abolished, just as they were in America. So there were some people whose behavior and whose morals judged by today's standards hold up and others who don't. I mean, how do we approach that historically? I think we approach it case by case on the basis of being open-minded and intelligent. I think the idea that we're going to judge 
I don't know, um, Oliver Cromwell on his views on socialised medicine, uh, for example, would be utterly ludicrous. Whereas you're right, if there is a, a good debate going on from the 1750s or earlier onwards about the morality of uh, slavery, then it is possible to criticise Thomas Jefferson, say, for owning slaves. But I think you've got to go one stage further and recognise that the statue put up to him at City Hall in New York was not put up because of anything to do with slavery or because actually of maybe even of his moral stance anyway on anything. It was put up because he was the author of those incredible words in the Declaration of Independence that make you proud to be human. It was put up because he was one of the authors of a constitution that's lasted 250 years and kept a very vociferous continent together as the greatest power in the world. It was put up because he was willing to put his own life on the line to make his country sovereign and independent. These are the reasons, and if those are the reasons that still exist, all three of those things do exist. I think it's just insane to pull down or to remove the statue on the basis of something completely different, which was not part of, of the original impetus in the first place. Where do you stand on the issues of Confederacy memorials? I mean, that's become a hugely controversial issue. I think lots of those were, in fact, put up for different reasons than the ones that are honourable and noble. I think that a lot of them were put up as a way of kind of impressing on the majority black population who essentially had the whip hand. And I also think that because they were rebels and traitors, essentially, to the United States, that they don't have the same kind of uh, moral force in the same way that the founding fathers do. So I wasn't as put off by the removal of those statues. I was very put off by the vandalising of them. I think that was completely unnecessary. You know, if people are able to pull down statues of Stalin and Lenin and put them in museums and parks rather than in uh, prominent places in Russia then certainly we should have been able, and in England, for example, the statue of Edward Colston that was pulled down and thrown into the harbour of Bristol. I think that that shows that we really are um, in a cultural war state now that has gone far, far beyond the reason. Final question, Andrew. You've written extensively about the role of great men in history. And as we look at our own leaders in the West and you look at Joe Biden and you look at what's happened to Boris and you look at Trump, is it just sort of the kind of jaded cynicism of, of, of our times that says, you know, what has happened to great men? Or is there something about our age and whatever has happened to us as a civilization that actually they're getting fewer and further between? And women, I should say, I should, by men, I should be very careful to include women. Yes, exactly. It's not just men, is it? And, and I have written about Margaret Thatcher as well, who, of course, I consider to be a great woman. And it's very pleasing also to see how every single one of these leadership candidates has said how great Margaret Thatcher is, and so they've invoked her. So that's a good sign for her continuing legacy over the Conservative Party. But I think that, as I mentioned earlier, great events throw up great leaders. I think that uh, were we to have another war or something along those lines. That was what, after all, did throw up Winston Churchill. Uh, he would never have become Prime Minister if it hadn't been for the Second World War. And then when we do see a war break out in Europe, what do we see but President Zelensky um, being thrown up by that and behaving with Churchillian leadership, quite astonishing leadership. The remark about not wanting a lift but wanting ammunition, I think will go down in history as one of the great rallying cries. And so there is a classic example, I think, of the Times throwing up the leader that the nation desperately needs. Andrew Roberts, historian, whose latest book is a biography of George III. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. 
That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much for listening. And please do join us again next week for another exploration of the issues that are shaping our world. Thank you and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.